0: Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Joseph Stewart. I'm a PhD candidate in history at the University of Utah. Today I'll be speaking with John Wigger, professor of history at the University of Missouri and a historian of American religion and culture about his book, PTL: The Rise and Fall of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker's Evangelical Empire. Welcome, John, to the New Books Network. Thanks. Glad to be here. I'll also let readers know that we'll be discussing sexual assault, uh, just in we won't be going into it in depth, but want you to know that if that's not something you are ready to hear about, this may not be the podcast for you. Now, John, your first two books are on Methodists in the British Atlantic and early American Republic. How did you come to write a book about Pentecostals in the 20th century United States?
1: Well, I'm not sure there's a single good explanation for that, but maybe the thread that ties them together is I've always been interested in religious movements that reached out to a broad audience and found new ways to engage popular culture. Um, Certainly that was true of early Methodism. And uh, I think it was equally true of early Pentecostalism. And then later in this period of evangelicals, Pentecostals who picked up TV and found a way to use television when television was a kind of defining element of American culture in the
0: 60s and 70s and 80s. So when did you first become aware of the Bakers?
1: Oh, I think I probably knew about this growing up, but I never saw the
0: show until I uh, came to study it a few years ago. So jumping into the book, Jim Baker grew up as a Pentecostal Christian, which you write was at odds with post-war American culture, driven by affluence, entertainment, and consumerism. So first, what is Pentecostalism, and why were its devotees considered outside the American cultural mainstream?
1: Pentecostalism under that name as a specific movement takes root in early 20th century America. And I think through World War II, Pentecostals were generally seen as outsiders on the American religious landscape. That begins to change after the war when they participate in post-World War II affluence. And Jim and Tammy really became symbols of how Pentecostals had made it, so to speak, in modern American society. It's It's that point where Pentecostalism to a certain extent goes mainstream, especially in the charismatic movement, which are basically people who adopt Pentecostal practices and theology, but stay in their mainline Presbyterian Baptist churches and Roman Catholics as well.
0: That's really helpful. So when you say charismatics, from what I understand, that's folks who participate in what they determine to be gifts of the spirit. So speaking in tongues or having sort of ecstatic experiences. Is that correct? That is correct. And then in this post-World War II period, what gets added is
1: what becomes known as the prosperity gospel, but I think really is better understood as a gospel of abundance, the abundant life, because it's about more than just money.
0: Right. It's not only health, it's also wealth as well, right? Yeah, health, wealth. psychological well-being. So how did Jim Baker and Tammy Faye meet?
1: So they met at North Central Bible College, which is an an Assemblies of God school in Minneapolis. Um, Baker had come there from um, Muskegon, Michigan, where he grew up. Um, Tammy followed him a year later from International Falls, Minnesota. And they met during Tammy's first year at North Central they went on three dates in one week. And on the third date, Jim proposed, and
0: Tammy said yes. Efficient, maybe, as a way of courtship. But so is it unusual that they're meeting in the upper Midwest? Because when I think of Pentecostalism, often I think about the West Coast, so like the Azusa Street revivals, but also the American South. It certainly had spread throughout the country, not entirely evenly
1: but Pentecostalism was not just a regional religion. It wasn't just a religion of the Bible Belt.
0: So shortly after their marriage, they become traveling preachers. And I was really struck, was it common at that time for women to preach in Pentecostalism either independently or from the same pulpit as their husbands? It was far more common among
1: Pentecostals. There was by no means a, a parity between women and men preaching. But Pentecostals had always been more accepting of women in ministry, I
0: think, than a lot of other evangelical Christian groups. Was Tammy Faye particularly drawn to preaching? Was it something that she felt really comfortable with? Or was it something that she felt that she needed to do to support her husband?
1: You know, um, well, first of all, I don't think Tammy did all that much preaching. I think Jim basically did the preaching and Tammy played instruments piano accordion, she sang, and they also developed a puppet show that we can talk about, I'm sure. So it was mostly Jim who was doing the preaching, although um, especially early on, Tammy was, was committed to ministry.
0: Over time, they eventually figure out that they want to start a television network in North Carolina, which they call PTL, which is sort of an ambiguous name, but stands for Praise the Lord. How did they come to broadcast their ministry over television's airwaves, going from traveling preachers to preaching over television?
1: Well, their first exposure to television was on Pat Robertson's tiny Christian television station in Portsmouth, Virginia. That's where they got their start. And uh, they created a television show for children, which eventually was called The Jim and Tammy Show, which was wildly popular, the, the station's most popular show. Um, After they left CBN, they went to the West Coast where they uh, started, I think it was TBN with Paul and Jan Crouch. They were there for a couple of years and then that relationship fell apart and they'd had some contacts in Charlotte from earlier ministry stops. So they basically ended up back in Charlotte where they were invited by a group to help start a local Christian television station. You just mentioned
0: that Tammy Faye was really skilled as a puppeteer and that she drew in children with this. Was there a specific children-focused aspect of their ministry at the beginning, or was this something that came along later?
1: When they were traveling evangelists, they wanted something that would keep the kids interested, that would bring the entire family to their meetings. And that's when they came up with the idea to do a puppet show. But as it turned out, Tammy was brilliant with those puppets She gave them personalities, she gave them voices, she brought them to life. And Tammy had a big personality herself, and that came through with her puppets. And that's really what drew Pat Robertson to them and, and what brought them to CBN in the beginning. So puppets really were foundational to them. Uh, to their start in ministry.
0: Yeah, and for listeners, they can look up on YouTube some of Tammy Faye Baker's uh, work with puppets. And I would encourage you to check that out, especially because it works as a great primary source material in class, to think about the different ways that mid-20th century Christians are are doing their best to appeal to a wide variety of people. Now, as Jim and Tammy Faye grow their business, they grow PTL, they come to rely on many people that stick with them for a long time, but also some folks that go in and out of their ministry. And in saying that, I don't get the sense that either Jim or Tammy Faye were formally instructed in business. Did the folks that they hired to run PTL have formal backgrounds in business or administration? Or was this much more of a Pentecostal network where believers of the same faith were relying on each other to build PTL?
1: So in the beginning, they had a small group of colleagues who were very committed to ministry, to evangelism, uh, specifically through television. And they didn't have any money when they started. So the money side of it was kind of irrelevant. If you don't have any money, it's not that important. But particularly after they launched their independent satellite television network, the money started to pour in. And at that point, the money came, became important. Unfortunately, at the same time, a lot of the people who were part of the early ministry left because they thought the ministry was going in the wrong direction in many ways. And the people who replaced them were not nearly as trustworthy.
0: So trustworthy in terms of managing money or in other ways?
1: Well, in a lot of ways, uh, their, their basic motivation for being there but it certainly carried over into their approach to money.
0: So as PTL grows, they start to figure out that there's new technology around satellite television. How did they encounter the idea of satellite TV and how did they use it to their advantage? So PTL created the
1: first independent satellite network at a time when the major networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, were really dragging their feet um, about getting into satellite. And only HBO and Ted Turner's small UHF station in Atlanta were up on satellite before PTL. Ted Turner owned the station, the very small station that PTL broadcast from in Charlotte, so they were aware of what Turner was doing. And essentially, some of the people at PTL, specifically Roger Flessing, got the idea that if they could put their show up on satellite, well, they would just have a a much bigger audience, which absolutely was true. Um,
0: They had a, they had a satellite network a year before ESPN. That's pretty incredible. And really falls into a longer line of Protestant Christians using available media technologies to expand their reach. With this reach, they're able to raise a lot more money. How did PTL make money?
1: Well, They asked for donations the way most religious groups do. At the beginning, they didn't constantly beg for money. Uh, That's that's sort of a misconception about their show. But they did from the beginning have set piece events, uh, telethons, where they would ask people to give pledges, um, which is not That different from how most public radio stations solicit their donations. So in in that sense, there really wasn't anything that unusual about the the way they raised their money. What they did with their money after they got it was, was the thing that eventually became controversial.
0: What did they do with their money? Because you write and show through documents that Jim and Tammy Faye both enjoyed purchasing the finer things in life. How did that align with broader American consumer culture at the time? The prosperity gospel was a perfect
1: fit for the 1980s. Um, There's a line in the 1987 movie Wall Street where Michael Douglas's character, Gordon Gecko, says basically greed is good. And Pentecostals evangelicals wouldn't have said that greed was good, but they certainly would not also have said that poverty was any better. Um, So in that sense, raising a lot of money and spending it fairly extravagantly fit the the tenor of the times.
0: In reading it, I was curious if it also reflected their class backgrounds in some way. They came from working class backgrounds. Was it something... Thrilling to them individually, as well as aligning with their belief in the prosperity gospel, that they now had access to experiences and objects that they could have in their lives.
1: I think they enjoyed those things as most people would, but I don't think Jim or Tammy were ever primarily motivated by the money. It really wasn't what they were after.
0: Thanks. I think that's an important clarifying point. Now, the Bakers, of course, have this television network and they have several television shows, including including interview shows based off of Johnny Carson's uh, late night television. And so what sort of guests would the Bakers have on their interview shows? The amazing thing is the range of guests they
1: had. So they had the usual group of religious celebrities, but they also had people that were far outside the evangelical mainstream, Little Richard Eldridge Cleaver, Mr. T, um, all kinds of guests who didn't fit that kind of mainstream evangelical expectation.
0: Yeah, I can only imagine Little Richard uh, coming onto the show being somewhat of a shock to maybe some of the older or more conservative audiences of PTL. Did they ever face any blowback from the guests that they had on the show?
1: Well, they did, but by and large, I think audiences were fascinated, intrigued. Larry Flint was also on the show, the publisher of Hustler magazine,
0: which you get into in the book and would recommend that folks again, recommend that folks read the book entitled PTL, the rise and fall of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker's evangelical empire. In thinking about their guests, did their access to guests or their guest appearance on their TV shows grant them any sort of political power or influence?
1: Jim and Tammy were never politically sophisticated. And again, I I think in counterpoint to say Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, politics was never a central motivation for them. Of course, they welcomed the the attention of powerful people, including powerful politicians. Jim got a ride on Air Force One with Jimmy Carter. Who wouldn't want that? They went to the White House. Who wouldn't do that? Um, So they were intrigued by national politics and its power, but, but they were never primarily interested in that, and certainly were never politically sophisticated.
0: And it's actually something that strikes me because many historians will frame religious people as political actors rather than religious people who happen to uh, encounter politics in their in their work. Is there a way in which you wrote that you had to consciously separate yourself from from writing a certain kind of political history with PTL?
1: Well, I'm not a political historian. And that was one of the things that drew me to this story, because I think there is a lot of reductionism that goes on in scholarship where uh, religion gets reduced to politics. And I don't think that's always the most helpful thing to do. Um, So I wanted a topic that was explicitly not primarily uh, about politics.
0: So even as PTL is becoming a national and even international sensation, the bakers are spending their money and investing their money faster than it's coming in. And one of their uh, ventures was called Heritage USA. Could you tell us about that theme park? Yeah, so Jim had this dream of
1: building a Christian Disneyland on the North Carolina, South Carolina border called Heritage USA. Eventually, Heritage USA in court included 2,300 acres, and it had what they built as the world's largest water park at one point. It had theaters. It had the television studios where they recorded their television programs. It had a petting zoo, and it also had one 500-room hotel and another under construction.
0: That seems like a very expensive proposition to construct and then run. How... Did the Bakers and the PTL team's mismanagement make the theme park even more of a headache than just running a theme park would be on its own?
1: Building Heritage USA costs more than even the television money was bringing in. And specifically, when Jim wanted to build the Heritage Grand Hotel, a 500-room hotel, he wanted to do it without getting a bank loan, which would have required them to open their books up to outside auditors. And he came up with a, a plan that was absolutely brilliant in its conception, which was that he would ask for donations of $1,000 from people who would become lifetime partners. So if you gave $1,000, you became a lifetime partner. And that entitled you to three nights and four days at the Heritage Grand Hotel once a year for the rest of your life. So if, you, if they brought in 25000 Lifetime Partners, that's 25,000 times 1,000, which is $25 million, which at the start was the estimated budget for building the Heritage brand. 25,000 partners also represented 50% occupancy in the hotel. So they could build the hotel debt-free, and they were only committed to give away half the rooms to Lifetime Partners once a year. But the other half, they could bring in people who would pay for the night and in that way the hotel could pay for its upkeep and and be constructed debt free unfortunately the the lifetime partnership program was so popular that they didn't stop at 25,000 they just kept going and going and going and eventually they sold something like 75,000 lifetime partnerships in the heritage brand which was more than 100% occupancy and then they proposed building another 500-room hotel, the Heritage Grant Towers, and way oversold
0: that program. And then they added other proposed lodging
1: projects on the park and way oversold those as well.
0: In my mind, I'm seeing this as coming back to their belief in the prosperity gospel as well, in that they're saying, well, if we are providing, if we are showing our faith, then God will bless us with ways out of the jams that we're in right now. Would you say that that's fair, or did that not enter into their thinking?
1: No, I think it's very fair. Um, At one point, Jim had this phrase where he said that God had a special math that wasn't the math of bankers and accountants. Unfortunately, their creditors just didn't see it that way.
0: So later on in the book, you write that Jimmy Swaggart sought out to destroy PTL. How did Jimmy Swaggart get his sights set on PTL? I'm not sure it's exactly
1: fair to say that Jimmy Swaggart set out to destroy PTL, but he was certainly hostile to PTL. He and Jim Baker were both ministers in the Assemblies of God. And Swaggert's brand of faith was much more old line Pentecostalism, much more fire and brimstone. He didn't like what the Bakers were doing at PTL. And when he heard rumors about Jim's sexual indiscretions, uh, he and his wife Frances really set on that.
0: Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. I guess now is as good a time as any to say that. Jim Baker engaged in an extramarital affair with Jessica Hahn, who accused Baker of rape. How did Baker and Hahn meet? Jessica Hahn was a church
1: secretary on Long Island or an independent Pentecostal church on Long Island. Uh, The senior pastor was a guy named Gene Perfetta. And a regular guest uh, at Perfetta's church was a minister, an Assemblies of God minister, John Wesley Fletcher. So Han knew Fletcher, and Fletcher had begun appearing regularly on Jim Baker's show and wanted to become a part. In fact, he had ambitions to co-host the show with Jim. At the same time, though, it became clear that Fletcher had problems, and some of the young men at PTL began to complain that he was making sexual advances towards them. And so I think to kind of try and save his position at PTL... John Wesley Fletcher brought Jessica Hahn to Florida where he and Baker were doing a telethon and essentially set up their meeting without Jessica Hahn really understanding what Fletcher uh, intended to do.
0: That's fascinating, especially thinking about in the past few years as the Me Too movement has started and the Christian Me Too movement has started and thinking about Jessica Hahn in that context.
1: Well, that's true. Jessica Hahn was only 21 years old when she went to Florida. Baker and John Wesley Fletcher were in their 40s. They were powerful. At least uh, Baker was powerful and wealthy. I think what happened to Jessica Hahn would be treated entirely different in this post-Me Too movement. Jessica Hahn was Monica Lewinsky before Monica Lewinsky.
0: Again, we're discussing John Wigger's book, PTL, The Rise and Fall of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker's Evangelical Empire. Now, when Baker's affair with Han comes to light, he turns to Jerry Falwell for advice on how to turn PTL around. What advice did Falwell offer and did Baker take it?
1: Jim knew that he would have to step away from PTL for a time, but he also knew that if they lost Significant portion of their donations that they would go under. I mean, they were just literally on the knife's edge financially. So he knew that he needed someone who was a big name, who was a religious celebrity, to come in and take over the flagship program and the leadership of PTL for a time until he could come back. I think he actually wanted Oral Roberts, but then Oral Roberts had his own problem in January of 1987. The Jessica Hahn um, scandal really becomes public in March, 1987. So by then, Baker couldn't ask Oral Roberts to come in and help him. So he turned to Jerry Falwell, and it was really about the money. He wanted someone who could keep the donations rolling in. He wanted someone who he thought wouldn't want to take over his television show and his empire because they were far enough removed from it and Falwell wasn't a Pentecostal. Unfortunately, he really seriously miscalculated when he invited Jerry Falwell in.
0: And that compounded when it came to light that Baker had engaged in other extramarital relationships, including homosexual relationships. What does the the public reaction about those relationships reveal about Protestant Christians' ideas about homosexuality in the 1980s?
1: Well, especially in the 1980s, evangelical Christians were not at all tolerant towards gay people. An extra, a heterosexual extramarital affair was something that a pastor could recover from potentially, but a same-sex relationship was simply not. So when those came to light, that that really undermined Jim Baker's position in a huge way.
0: Yeah, and it eventually leads to his resignation from PTL wherein he eventually faces criminal charges. Could you tell us about the process of him being charged and what happened in the court proceedings?
1: Sure. So after PTL falls apart, Baker is indicted for mail and wire fraud. And essentially what he's accused of by federal prosecutors is soliciting money for one thing, um, for example, to build the hotels, but then using it for something else. Now, in Fairness to Baker, the something else was usually another building project or debt connected with Heritage USA. The money didn't go offshore, so to speak. Um, But nevertheless, he frequently raised money for one project, but then actually used it to pay for something else.
0: So he's eventually convicted and skipping forward to the end. Tammy Faye Baker died in 2007, but Jim is still working. What is he up to now?
1: He has a kind of a miniature version of Heritage USA outside of Branson, Missouri, complete with a television studio that looks amazingly like the, the television studio at Heritage USA. It's all much smaller and uh, on a smaller scale. Essentially, he's trying to recreate 1980s television in the 2020s, and it, it, it simply isn't as effective. Television just isn't what it was in the 1980s. At the same time, he's also pivoted from the prosperity gospel, which is doesn't really have the same power to appeal to people as it did in the 1980s to post 9-11 survivalism and prepperism.
0: Well, thank you, John, for stopping by the New Books Network. And where can people get in contact with you if they have questions about your work?
1: Our department website at the University of Missouri is probably the best place to do that.
0: Okay. Thank you so much, John. And we look forward to speaking with you whenever you have another project to work on or to speak about. Thanks. It's been fun.